This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Christians, perhaps American Christians more than most, frequently say that they want pastors and teachers to be practical. They say that they want to know how to apply the Christian faith to daily life. To that end, Christians spend much time and lots of money in order to find out how to live the Christian life practically. What would you think, however, if I told you that there is a free book that already does everything Christians say they want? And further, that this book is not only widely available, perhaps it's at your fingertips right now or on your phone or your tablet or your computer, but that unlike most of the rest of the books in the bookstore or online, it is divinely inspired and inerrant. It's called Proverbs, and it's in your Bible right after Psalms. In 31 chapters, it explains what wisdom is, what it looks like, why it's beneficial, where to find it, and what happens when we choose its opposite, foolishness. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. Brian Estelle is Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he teaches a course on the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, including the book of Proverbs, and he's here to help us understand how Proverbs can help us get a heart of wisdom. He's author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah, and co-editor of and contributor to The Law is Not of Faith. These and other titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Brian. Welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. It's good to be here with you. We're talking about Proverbs and how do we connect Proverbs to wisdom generally, which maybe will be one of the easier questions we'll discuss, but also what do we do with it? And let's start with the general. What do we mean and what do scholars mean, people like you mean, when they talk about wisdom literature? As Old Testament scholars, when we talk about wisdom literature, we're talking about three books primarily, uh, the book of Proverbs and the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes, although there are wisdom elements elsewhere in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. For example, there's wisdom psalms and there's wisdom elements in the New Testament. The traditional Jewish distinctions in the Hebrew Bible are the Torah, the Navim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. So, help us to relate that last category, the writings, to the wisdom literature. Are the Ketuvim, the writings, broader than the wisdom literature and the wisdom narrower? Yeah, there's other books in the Ketuvim, the writings. So, for example, the Book of Ruth, or the Song of Songs. But the wisdom literature is uh, characterized by certain elements and therefore a smaller class within the Ketuvim. What makes a piece of literature a piece of wisdom literature then? What qualifies it? Well, there's a number of common elements in the wisdom literature. For example, there's usually a sharp contrast between the wicked and the righteous. There's advice about conduct coming from a sage that results in misfortune or blessing. There's comparisons and admonitions that are used to spur one on to faith and faithfulness. Better than sayings, of course, in the Proverbs. Say that again. When you say better than sayings, what does that mean? Yeah, this is a common construction where you have it set up grammatically that this is better than that. and um, So, comparisons. 
comparisons, and that's meant to inculcate virtue and wisdom, especially. My son sayings are very common, both in extra-biblical wisdom literature and in wisdom literature. And then you have a whole set of vocabulary that's, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, there's a high density of that vocabulary that's characterized as wisdom vocabulary that helps us identify wisdom literature. Give us a couple of examples. This word that Professor Van E talked about at the conference this January, chokhmah, has to do with skillful expression of some... And that's the word that's principally translated as wisdom. Yeah. Though there are other nouns and words that are translated. There are. They can be very broad, uh, like the word for knowledge, the noun da'at, and that has to do with wisdom. But then there's a set of words gathered around the notion of having insight. In other words, perception into something, right perception into something, perhaps sometimes even right perception into something so that a wise person can judge what the trajectories of one's actions will be, either negative or positive. And of course, there's words for fool or foolishness. I think we're going to talk about those in a few minutes here, talk about the fool, and so maybe I'll bring those up then. But there's a whole category of about 10 wisdom words that occur with high density in the wisdom literature and Proverbs especially, and they are not mere synonyms. When you read your English Bible, they may sound like mere synonyms, but they are not. So, there are differences between them that add nuances of shadings of meaning and indicate distinctions between them. That's exactly right. The first sort of literature, or the first sort of subgenre that you mentioned under wisdom literature, is in patristic studies called the two ways literature. Is it described that way in Old Testament studies? Uh, we do have a whole literature or secondary literature that develops the two ways. This often is thought of as flowing out of Proverbs in the wisdom literature. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, in particular, are contrasted in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. This influences heavily also the extra-biblical literature in early Judaism. And so, there was this doctrine of two ways, if you will. But also, it's much broader than that. I won't get us off on too much of a rabbit trail, but there is a whole development of the way that flows out of the Torah and into the prophetic literature, uh, particularly into Isaiah. And uh, you'll remember the famous passage, which was the defining passage for the early Judaism, uh, Isaiah 43, 4, 5, 6, where one is coming who will prepare the way. That's picked up by New Testament authors to develop a whole new Exodus theme. And then, of course, Christians become characterized in the book of Acts as the ones who are on the way, or even are referred to as the way. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, there are threads from the wisdom literature, or roots, that shoot out all through Scripture. It's not just isolated in a few particular books, and you've already sort of suggested that. At the same time, we've been spending uh, this season and the January conference talking about wisdom, and yet it seems as if the wisdom literature, whether we describe it broadly or narrowly, it seems neglected. Is that true? And if so, why do you think that is? I think that is true, especially with the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, in my experience, is a little bit easier to handle for parents and family devotions, for school instruction, perhaps even to preach on, although 
I've been having conversations with people asking me, how do I preach the book of Proverbs? And that's not an easy task either. But Job and Ecclesiastes are more difficult books, or maybe to be more precise, they're often misinterpreted. Okay, give us an example. What's a common or frequent misinterpretation of Proverbs? Well, often it will be used just lifted out of context. So, for example, the famous character sketches of one well-known Christian person, such that these are taken as bare moralisms that can be lifted and perhaps even used in a secular educational context. And that's not exactly what Proverbs is about. Proverbs is about developing virtue. And also, even though sometimes you have these short aphorisms that are very clear in their stipulatory nature as far as getting at an individual to encourage them to faith and faithfulness, to lift that out and merely situate it in a framework of bare moralism apart from the covenant, for example, apart from the fear of the Lord, just doesn't do it justice, nor does it do it justice to the ultimate goal of Proverbs, which is to internalize virtue and wisdom so that a person almost intuits, if you will, uh, what is right in a given situation and has a repugnance or an antipathy for doing what is wrong, going the way of the wicked. Uh, Let's dwell on that because I think that's really important. So, as you read Proverbs, the ultimate goal is to enable the believer, so these are not just aphorisms to be lifted out and used, you know, here or there without regard to their original intent and context, right? So, the goal of these is to enable believers to find a way to look at the world themselves to enable them to develop a certain habit or disposition to develop a habit of life. Yeah, I think that's uh, good. In fact, that would be uh, very intriguing to develop the whole notion that comes out of uh, what the theological side of literature about having a habitus and uh, how that might compare with the wisdom literature and its goal and Proverbs in particular. Um, years ago, probably my first teacher here at Westminster, Mark Furtado, mentioned that the purpose of Proverbs was to call an individual to make a fundamental decision in her or his basic life commitment. And I think as I've thought about it through the years, more generally that can be panned out in the following way. It's really to teach the fear of the Lord and specifically how to train people to respond to life's challenges and situations with covenantal faith and faithfulness. And maybe at this point to focus on the individualistic side of Proverbs would be helpful to get out this notion. There's something very individualistic and stipulatory about what the Proverbs are after. Meredith Klein developed this in the structure of biblical authority for readers that have that on page 64 to 66. He develops that. Let me give you an example. So, if the law, the moral law, says thou shalt not commit adultery, well, Proverbs develops that in a way that's especially appealing to the young man, in Hebrew, what is called the patim, which is the callow youth, the Mm. immature youth. And so, appealing to him in ways that might inculcate a judgment so that that young man may not even put himself in a context where he might subject himself to temptation that he couldn't resist. Hence, lady folly. Hence, don't even pass by the door of the woman whose husband happens to be out and makes an appeal to that young man to come in for uh, temporary pleasures, if you will. 
And so, Proverbs develops that in a way that makes the Seventh Commandment, for example, very individualistic and very stipulatory. Very particular. That's right. And also, when you begin to work your way through Proverbs, you see that there's this, as I mentioned earlier, and we are trying to plumb the depths of this subtle point, to internalize that. So, that becomes a part of character. So, it becomes a part of the virtue of a person. Now, of course, I should mention by way of qualification, even though lots of hay is made of this, that it's an appeal especially to youth, the prologue of Proverbs makes it quite clear that it's not just an appeal to youth. You could memorize the whole book of Proverbs. Memorize it and yet not be a wise person if you don't put it into practice. And so, you know, the old, the gray-haired, the ones without any hair. uh, (laughs) Not that you're thinking of any two people in particular. No. And uh, there is a universal reach to the book of Proverbs, but in the next breath, we should say, is particularly interested in appealing to the young and the unwise that they might become wise. So, this really begins to answer the question why it's important for Christians to know and read and understand and put to use the book of Proverbs. Because if you're asking, as I indicated in the introduction, well, what is the practical implication of the teaching of Scripture? It's right here in the book of Proverbs. Young man, don't be a fool. Don't put yourself, and in this particular case, in a place where you subject yourself to almost unbearable temptation. Be aware of the nature of temptation. And so, if you say, well, what does the seventh commandment imply for daily life as Christians actually live in the world? It's laid out for you in graphic detail powerfully, in really a very gripping way. If the listener hasn't ever sat down and just read the first nine chapters of Proverbs, it's very compelling, isn't it? There is a sort of a story there in a way. Absolutely. The first nine chapters have to do with, uh, if you will, an extended prologue. The prologue of Proverbs is chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, but there's this kind of extended prologue that gives an interpretation, a hermeneutic, if you will, a reading strategy uh, for the rest of the book, so that at chapter 10 through verse 31, now you get into the sententiae, that is the, uh, the short Proverbs, the short maxims, and the first nine chapters really orient a reader, really frame their expectations for how to interpret what we normally think of as Proverbs, if you will, these short maxims. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in Proverbs. 
Well, undoubtedly it happened in graduate school with a professor uh, named Roland Murphy. He's dead now, but during his life he was considered, he and Michael Fox, the doyens of wisdom literature and wisdom studies. So one of my professors, Aloysius Fitzgerald, had developed some health problems and resigned his post. So they were doing a search in order to replace him. And thankfully, my advisor, Doug Grupp, uh, gave Roland Murphy a call who was living in the D.C. area. He had uh, retired from Duke University and Doug had had him there. And so I had the extremely high privilege of reading Hebrew Bible with Professor Murphy while they were doing a search. And Steve Fassberg from Hebrew University and Doug Grupp, who had an interest in wisdom. And we read a uh, tractate out of the Mishnah called Avot, which has lots of wisdom-type characteristics to it. But I do have to say that um, my imagination was baptized, to steal a phrase from uh, C.S. Lewis uh, with regards to McDonald. My imagination was baptized by Roland Murphy, and I fell in love with the wisdom literature and have not gotten around to publishing much on it, although in the future I would like to because he gave me such a uh, thirst to know it more and more. How has teaching the wisdom literature affected you? How has it changed your life? Because you can't stand in front of students and talk about Proverbs and the rest of it and lead them through it and study the Hebrew text and come away from it unaffected any more than any other part of Scripture, right? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, and to tie in with some comments we were beginning to scratch on earlier, first of all, teaching the wisdom literature is challenging for all of us who are ministers and teachers. We realize that we need to take the log out of our own eye and not just look at this vocation to which we're called as a professional job, but also to realize that God's Word is shaping us. And so, when you begin to look at Lady Wisdom and all the ways you fall short of her call to covenantal faith and faithfulness, of course, that smites your conscience. But it also encourages you when you look at all the subject studies in Proverbs on anger, on self-control, on the use of the tongue, and especially with regards to the stipulatory nature of that, you realize how far short you fall. But nevertheless, God's Word not only uh, disciplines us and trains us, it also encourages us along the way the right way. And so, I would say that. The other area would be consolation to sneak Ecclesiastes and Job into the discussion. These books often sadly misunderstood, but extremely necessary for the Christian life because they're part of the canon of Scripture that God has bequeathed to us, a very important part to balance out, if you will, other parts. Those books bring great consolation. As ironic as that may sound, I think Ecclesiastes is one of the most consoling books in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Job has as its ultimate message a glad consecration to God, even in the midst of suffering when a saint is sitting on the ash heap. That's a rough paraphrase, um, and I should give credit where credit's due of Meredith Klein's take on the book. And I think he's right. It's not strictly a theodicy. It's not strictly speaking even about suffering. It's about Again, glad consecration despite life's vicissitudes uh, that may come um, in our pilgrimage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Recently, Stephen Fry, who is a British humorist and he's also an outspoken atheist, gave an interview in which he said that one of the reasons he doesn't believe in God is because children get bone cancer. And so he's essentially raising the problem of evil. My initial response was, read Job. 
What I meant to say by saying read Job is, listen, it's not as if those who believe in God haven't faced the problem of evil, and it isn't as if the problem of evil hasn't been explored in great depth and with real sophistication. And I don't mean to imply that it's been resolved, because I'm not sure that Job really tells us a resolution to the problem of evil, but it's certainly been addressed in a very sophisticated, touching, compelling, and powerful way in Job. What do you think of that response? I think that's uh, a good start. And if you have the opportunity to have further discussions with Stephen Fry or whoever the you know person on the other side of the yeah. table might be, then how much better to walk him through Job and dialogue with him about that? Because Job shook his fist at the heavens too. And Job has long been considered, together with Isaiah, masterpieces of world literature, let alone masterpieces perhaps the two top masterpieces of the Hebrew Bible. But what's strangely consoling, I think, about the book of Job is, and G.K. Chesterton points this out in an introduction to Job, is that a lesser poet would have answered Job's railings in the first 37 chapters because Job basically puts God in the dock. And then when we have these two theophanies, that is, these manifestations of God in the whirlwind towards the end of the book, chapter 38 through 42, divide those in two and you can see two different theophanies there. God actually addresses Job in riddles and in questions, not in answering all his questions. And I think often unbelievers need to realize that we as Christians, we as Reformed Christians, have a proper category for mystery, Mm. not mysteriousness, um, not mysticness, if you will. Or mysticism, yeah. Or mysticism, yeah, better yet. But there is real mystery. I mean, the problem of evil is a great, and I mean great in the sense of large, giant problem about which we shouldn't be speaking casually or carelessly or thoughtlessly. And it's also the case that the unbeliever needs to come to the bar of judgment, which is really what God says to Job in in chapter 38. I mean, he speaks to him in riddles, as you say, but isn't it also the case that God puts Job in the dock and says, well, before I submit to your interrogation, let me ask you some questions. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to be a spoiler here in case the listener hasn't explored that, but those are some great questions that would be interesting to put to Stephen Fry. Absolutely. And God, by asking these questions, are producing riddles before Job. He takes Job out to the shed, so to speak, and reminds him of his true place as a creature, uh, not as the creator. And Isn't it the truth that if God told us the solution to evil, it would kill us? We're not capable Yeah, you earlier were mitigating your question a little bit by saying, I want to make Job portraying God as giving the ultimate resolution or something like that. So, I guess for the listener, it might be helpful to remember, of course, that we never interpret individual books of the Old Testament by themselves or individualistically. So, we need to camp out and pause and let the literature, masterful literature at that, speak to us. And what we do see is that Job is reminded he's a creature and God is the creator. And ironically, paradoxically, 
that brings peace and consolation to Job. If you read those theophanies carefully, at the end of chapter 40 and the end of chapter 42, Job is suddenly consoled, satisfied, humbled, if you will, and, and is not as restless not as feisty. So, there's not facile answers that are given to the problem of suffering and evil in this case, but the riddles are strangely consoling. Now, you put that in the canonical context and you see how wisdom influences New Testament literature and such, and it would be entirely appropriate to ratchet it up to the canonical level and look ultimately, of course, at Paul and especially at uh, the book of Revelation and see that uh, there will come a time uh, when there will be ultimate resolution to the problem of evil. Believers will sing the song of the Lamb right out of the Exodus book in a whole new way, and there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering. But you're absolutely right. People have rejected and continue to reject Christianity as the way, because to their credit, they have deep-seated compassion for the suffering and injustice they see in the world. And so, it's very important as Christians to speak carefully that we live in a fallen world. To some degree, this is to be expected. Suffering, cancers, injustices, no resolution to injustices and tremendous suffering and persecution sometimes. And yet, there will come a time at the very end of time when our Lord Jesus comes back again, when there will be ultimate resolution to this. And it's not as if God himself has not fully entered into our suffering. And it's not as if it was God who introduced suffering into the world. No, that's exactly right. As our confessions say, and of course our confessions are merely deriving this out of the biblical teaching itself, we cannot lay at the feet of God responsibility for the evil that's entered into the world. Ultimately, that must be shouldered by man. So, that's a very important qualification. And also, we need to remember people who are going through tremendous suffering and hardship find consolation, as I'm sure you and I have as well, that um, it is a comfort to know that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, as the writer of Hebrews says, a God who has sent his son, his only begotten son, into the world to take the yoke of the law upon his shoulders. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says, and it's not just at the end that he suffered, but his whole life long, but especially at the end, a God who cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as uh, one theologian said years ago, all the wrath, all the metaphors and the pictures of terror, of destruction that we read about in the book of Revelation, and more come down upon the sun at that point because he becomes the propitiation for our sin. And uh, so, it's not <laughs> merely the physical suffering that our Lord and Savior went through on the cross and through his whole life long, but especially that spiritual separation from God because he became the wrath bearer on our behalf. This is the end of part one of our discussion with Dr. Brian Estelle about wisdom in Proverbs. Join us next time for part two. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.